Now this evening we're going to focus on 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians and I shall read the entire chapter. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. In fact, <clears throat> we're a mixed group tonight because we come from different traditions in keeping with the coalition uh, diversity. But one of the great liturgical formulas that many churches use around the world is precisely that one. Scripture is read, and then who's ever reading the scripture says, um, this is the word of the Lord. And the congregation responds, thanks be to God. Isn't that a great, a great bit of liturgy? And so hereafter, when I speak tomorrow or on Sunday, I will finish the reading and I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And you will say? Yes, a little bit of liturgy is a very good thing, you must understand. <laughs> Let us bow in prayer. <clears throat> and now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts... Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. For two or three decades, some philosophers and some preachers have been introducing us to the notion of defeater beliefs. 
My friend Tim Keller likes to talk about defeater beliefs. Have you heard it? A defeater belief is a belief which, if true, means that certain other beliefs can't be true. In other words, that belief defeats other beliefs. For example, one common defeater belief in the Western world is the belief that there cannot possibly be just one true religion. That's a very, very widely spread belief. But it's a defeater belief in that if you really hold that belief to be true, then it defeats Christian belief. Because Christian belief holds that there is only one way to God. So that you can engage with people in university missions or in personal one-on-one evangelism at work and and you give all your reasons for thinking that the gospel is true that might start with the truthfulness of God's revelation and his matchless love on the cross and all all kinds of things, apologetics of different sorts, your own personal testimony, and, and they will say, very interesting, what about all the Hindus? And because they have bought into this popular cultural belief, it has already defeated your belief, and they don't have to listen seriously to what you're saying anymore. One needs to recognize, of course, that these defeater beliefs are highly dependent on specific cultures. Across cultures, they are often mutually contradictory. For example, in the Middle East, where I like to spend time, The defeater belief that I've just described is almost unknown. Most people in the Middle East have no problem with the idea that there's only one true religion. The only question is which one? (laughs) When a culture develops an array of defeater beliefs... These defeater beliefs taken together constitute what is sometimes called an implausibility structure. That is, you take these defeater beliefs together and then outside anything of that structure, everything appears implausible. It's an implausibility structure. Do do, do you see? Christianity just looks silly. It's not to be evaluated. It's just dismissed. It's dumb. It's for right-wingers and kooks and idiots and people, you know? (laughs) And at this point, then, most people in the culture not only rely on their defeater beliefs to write Christianity off, but they come to the conclusion that Christianity simply isn't worth a hearing. It's simply too implausible. I was brought up in French Canada, so I try to spend time when I can in Francophone Europe. And not long ago, I was in something in Geneva, and I always go to the bookshops to find out what students are reading and so on. And I came across a book by Luc Ferry. He's a, he's a popular teacher, writer, philosopher in French university circles. He had written a book, it's about five years old now, called Apprendre à vivre, Learning to Live. And it was written for university students. What he says is that the problem with philosophy today is that it it focuses on this bitty question and on that bitty question and so on. But whereas philosophy, properly understood, is supposed to teach you how to live, learning to live. So he said that he would examine five major world philosophies, 
try to outline them as carefully as he could in his book, and then, and then criticize them to see what their weaknesses were. And one of the philosophies that he would present would be Christianity. Well, I read that chapter with a great deal of care, and you know his description of Christianity isn't bad. There, there, there are some people who try to describe Christianity, and it's not recognizable to me, to be, to be frank. But, but this, 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 this wasn't bad. And then he got to the critique session, and I thought, this will really be interesting. He had only one criticism. It was too good to be true. Written it off. Bang. Just like that. Implausibility structures win again. Do you see? Now, I wish I had time in another sort of address to challenge defeater beliefs and implausibility structures and some things that Christians can do to, to answer them. I think there are some things that can be done. But what I want to do at the moment is show that ours is not the first generation to face these challenges. The first century church faced those things. They faced them hugely. And in fact, many of the challenges they faced have striking similarities to what we face today, too. Now, Christians are increasingly feeling a certain cultural alienation. The difference is that go back 50 years, 60 years, 70 years in this country, there have always been mixes of Christians and non-Christians and people who couldn't care less and so on, but there was more of a Christian heritage in the country. So as a result, as Christians watch changes in the culture, we're in danger of starting to feel sorry for ourselves and resentful for all those people who are changing things. And we, we feel somehow as if everything's going, going to hell in a teapot. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just wretched. Do, 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 do you see? Whereas in point of fact, in the New Testament, that's the way all the Christians felt. When I was a young man starting out doing university missions, as I've often said, um, if I dealt with an atheist, he or she was a Christian atheist. That is, the God he or she disbelieved in was my God. Which meant the categories were still on my turf. Do, do, do you see? Nowadays you can't even presuppose that. The God that they disbelieve in may have no recognizable overlap with a Christian God. We need to remind ourselves of Paul's experiences in his opening weeks of evangelism in Europe. His first city that he hit was Philippi. There it wasn't long before he was incarcerated, run out of town on a rail, escaped only because God sent an earthquake and the prisoner was converted. And then they, he came to Thessalonica he lasted only about four or five weeks there, as far as we can tell. Planted a church in four or five weeks and then had to move on again. Then down to Berea in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 to 15, where people were a little more noble. They were willing to study the Bible to see if these things were true. And then his emissaries, his young men, were going back and forth, carrying things up. The visit by Timothy, was sent to, who was sent back to Thessalonica to find out what was going on and give them some more Bible instruction and take a report back to the apostle, who by this time had moved down onto Athens, and, and he preached there. That's recorded in Acts 17. And, and then he moves on to Corinth, and that's when Timothy and Titus join up with him. And when he's in Corinth, he's writing back then to the Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians. And probably a little farther on, while he was still in Corinth, and he wrote a second letter. What are some of the problems that they're facing? 
in Thessalonica. Well, in the first letter, there are questions about sexuality and about work and about Paul's integrity and emerging leadership and so on. But, But with it all is also an undergirding suspicion on the part of some that this exclusive claim of Christ is a bit narrow. Do you know the most difficult pressure that the Christian church faced in the pagan world until A.D. 300? Do you know what the most difficult problem was from the pagan world all around? It's what we would call pluralism. There were so many different religions, so many different nodes, modes of salvation, and, and, and all of them were arguing for their corner. But none of them would dare say theirs was the only way. And then along comes the Christians, and they said, Jesus is the only way. How narrow and bigoted and implausible is that? And the New Testament writers don't flinch. It's not because they're bigots. It's because they really do see what the problem is, alienation from the God who is there, rebellion against him, his wrath suspended over us righteously, and we must be reconciled to him, freed from our guilt, freed from our chains, freed from our broken minds and hearts, from our contamination, from what theologians call original sin. And so transformed by the power of the Spirit of God that ultimately one day we will be transformed further in resurrection existence in the new heaven and the new earth until things so that, such that things are absolutely perfect and, and the created order is reconciled to God in, in all of the purposes of God brought to fruition with Christ at the center as the Savior and Lord. What we find here in this chapter is really some interesting instruction. Paul has received some additional reports that have come to his ears. Some of the themes of 1 Thessalonians are absent in 2 Thessalonians, but some things are are even tougher. The church is being persecuted more violently. You can't read verses 3 and following without seeing it. We boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. There is more confusion about what happens at the end, the Lord's return. So the Thessalonian church is going through a difficult time with pressures on it both from the surrounding culture and from its own immaturity, its own lack of understanding of what the Bible says. So what does Paul say to a church living in difficult times? What are his emphases? Three things. Number one, he talks about the perseverance of believers. He talks about the perseverance of believers, verses 3 and 4. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Now, note carefully... Paul does not thank God for the perseverance of the Thessalonian Christians directly. Rather, he thanks God, he says, for the Thessalonians' increasing faith and increasing love from which he infers their perseverance. Now, that turns out not to be a picky point. It it, it comes close to the doctrine of sanctification. 
you need to remember that faith and love are two-thirds of what is sometimes called the Pauline triad. Faith, hope, and love. Paul talks about those three constantly. For example, he opens one Thessalonians, his first letter to them, with these words, verse 2, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember, we, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love. Do you see? Or go back to the previous letter, Colossians in the canon. What do we read? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Do you see? They're configured in various ways. In Colossians, it's, it's your great faith and your great love which, which have been grounded in your hope. That is, your anticipation of what is yet future because you're living in the light of the end that, that empowers your faith and, and, and your love. Now, in this passage, in 2 Thessalonians, you only get two of them. Hope is introduced in the next chapter, um, but we don't have time to pursue it here. You'll find it in chapter 2, verse 16. At the moment, however, note that what Paul thanks God for is the faith and the love that he sees in the Thessalonian community from which he infers their perseverance. In other words... The marks of vitality that signal Christians are persevering are, are, are elements of the Pauline triad. Sometimes when we hear the word persevere, we think, hang on by your fingernails. This is really so difficult. And God knows sometimes when we go through hard circumstances, chemotherapy, two years of a job loss, we, we, we can begin to feel as if, as if we're just hanging on by our fingernails. And th th these Christians are being persecuted. And they're immature. They're having some internal difficulties. And, and, and some are, are facing the dispossession of their goods. And some undoubtedly are being beaten up or thrown in jail. It's enough to discourage you. They're, they're, they're new Christians. They're not more than months old. And Paul does not say, I thank God that you're hanging in there. Not bad. What he says is, I thank God when I hear all these reports of your love. It's fantastic. And your faith. From which I infer there is perseverance. Do you see? We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more in the teeth of the opposition. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. You're constituting yourself a community. This is terrific, a different community, an eschatological community, a community of the Spirit of God, a community of the Son of God, a community of the covenant over against this whole world against you, which thinks that you are silly and stupid people. And you just love each other the more and exercise greater hope and faith. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance. Do you see? For Paul understands that the evidence of Christian maturity is not in the bigger building. It's not in how wonderful the budget is. It's not in how many PhDs you've got in your congregation. It's not in the size of your offerings. At the end of the day, the greatest sign of Christian maturation is the multiplication of faith and love. 
and add elsewhere hope. There are even some churches that are doctrinally robust in a sort of cliquish, argumentative sort of fashion where they don't love each other and they don't really trust God. They trust their arguments. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. That's not trying to undermine the truth. In in, in the Bible, it is the truth that brings about faith and love. Truth genuinely understood and absorbed and lived out that produces faith and love. But, as Paul can write to the Corinthians, there is a domain in church life where knowledge can puff up while love builds up. And the evidence for this fledgling church's spiritual maturation is in the teeth of opposition to display faith, trust, confidence in God. God and his promises and his word and his truth and love among the believers from which Paul infers they're persevering, not just hanging on there. They're persevering gloriously. Paul boasts about their virtues. Not that he planted the church. To boast about their virtues in this context is to boast about the power of the gospel. Look, he says, not, I'm a great church planter. Don't I produce nice churches? That's what he's saying. He's saying, I see the grace of the gospel in your life and I boast about that. So what does he talk about to a church facing difficult times? He talks about the perseverance of believers, what it signals. And second, he talks in this context about the patience and payback of God. He talks about the patience and payback of God, verses 5 to 10. All this, Paul writes, is evident that God's judgment is right. To what does the all this refer Their suffering, their endurance, no, all this, both. Both their suffering and their victorious endurance testify that God's judgment about these things is right. How so? Well, in the first place, one of the themes that is pretty common in Paul is that if you follow Jesus in this life, you will face some perseverance, some persecution. You will face some opposition. Do you remember what he writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29? To you, he says, it has been given on behalf of Christ not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Do you hear that? It's been given to you, a, a gracious gift. This is something God has given On behalf of Christ, a gift God has given you, secured by Christ, to believe on his name and to suffer for his sake. Those are the gifts. And the suffering in that context is not one more round of chemo. The suffering in this context is opposition. Have you reflected on that verse in Acts 5.41? 
the apostles rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. I've read that verse countless times and I've thought about it, but I don't think I actually properly understood it until about five years ago when I was trying to think it through in the context of the book of Acts and well, what's going on here. You, you have to remember that this is not all that long since Jesus himself taught them on the night that the Lord was betrayed, he taught them that the disciple is not greater than his master. If, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they accepted me, they will, they, they will accept you. You have to accept these things. And, of course, there's quite a lot of emphasis along those lines in, in Jesus' teaching. In Matthew's gospel, for example, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For great is your reward in heaven. And you're aligned with the prophets who came before you, don't you see? This, this is what makes you blessed of God. There's quite a lot of such theme. And the apostles heard it the night before Jesus was betrayed and then subsequently crucified. Then the resurrection takes place. The resurrection appearances unpack. And then eventually Pentecost and the descent of the Spirit and great power. And life is fun. I mean, they're preaching, they're courageous. Oh, there's, there's talk of opposition. The authorities aren't too keen, but they don't dare do anything. I mean... <laughs> Thousands are being converted. Thousands are being converted. And home Bible studies are being set up all over Jerusalem. And, and occasionally they have these big meetings in Solomon's Colonnade, the only place where they could all come together at the same time. Great hymns and songs and canticles, no doubt. And, 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 and still these Bible studies are multiplying. And the apostles are in such fantastic good odor with the people that some people in the streets are scrambling just to have Peter's shadow fall over them. Life is good. This is unbelievably good. But I can imagine them beginning to say to each other, uh, John, you know, remember that stuff that Jesus said the night that he was betrayed about persecution? Where's that? I don't know. Are we doing something wrong? Well, I don't know. The Spirit is, is working powerfully. It's, 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 it's wonderful to see all these people convert, and they're genuinely converted. Do you, do you know? They're, they're selling land and giving the, the money to the church for the sake of looking after the poor, and the gospel is, 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 is bearing fruit. It, it's, it's wonderful. These are the fulfillment times of, of, of Joel and, and of other prophets. This is ter- But where's the persecution, John? And finally, Peter and John, for the first time, get beaten up, good and proper. <laughs> and they say, yes, yes, it's about time. <laughs> Terrific. They count themselves worthy because they have now suffered for the sake of the name. Now, imagine the transformation of the church in North America. If every time we were slighted or got picked upon, or rejected because of the character of our integrity and the quiet witness which we bear to Christ, where people laugh at us or sneer at us at school or at work, or maybe you don't get a promotion because your boss is a drunk and you won't drink with him. Every time, every time that that happened, you said to yourself, yes, it's wonderful to bear even the slightest reproach for Jesus' sake. Instead of feeling, this whole culture is going to hell. 
I mean, I mean undoubtedly it is. But, 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 but the trouble is you keep saying that and all you do is start feeling self-righteous. Well, they're going to help, but not me. And then you feel a pity party coming over you. And, and, and people who are wallowing in pity parties never win anybody. They're just ugly. But here instead are Christians who are rejoicing because, because they understand that it has been given to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe but also to suffer for Jesus' sake. In fact, the evidence that God's judgment about what's going on in the world is right is bound up first and foremost with the suffering of Christians. Do you want to see God's judgment being right? Go and look at the suffering of Christians in the Dali area of China. Go and look at Christians in Iran. And I'll show you evidence that God's judgment is right. The truth prevails and there will be opposition. And in the midst of that opposition, God raises up his people, showing great love and great faithfulness and living in the hope of the end. And a division is formed in the culture. their suffering, and their perseverance. Elsewhere, we're told repeatedly that if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. Colossians 21, uh, 1, 21 to 23. Hebrews 3, we have been made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. All of this is evidence in advance of God's righteous judgment, and as a result, these folk will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God at the end for which they are suffering. Counted worthy. This does not mean that they earn it. Look at where verse 12 goes, after all. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. No, it's evidence, valid evidence, that they are qualified to enter at the end. They're qualified. It's all evidence. That is the transformation of their lives, the overflow of Christian faith, the overflow of Christian hope, the overflow of Christian um, love is evidence that the gospel has taken such deep root in their lives that they are counted worthy at the end. In other words, the presupposition is where the gospel takes root, it's demonstrated in transformed living. Isn't that what Jesus teaches? By their fruit you shall know them. Why should we be surprised? And all of this is part of the great reversal bound up with the justice of God. Verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And when will this happen? 7b. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And then the following verses talk about the return of the Lord. In other words, although the word hope has not yet been introduced, what we are looking forward to is the anticipation of the end. It is, in fact, Christian hope. And the word itself is introduced in the next chapter. Now, let me remind you of something that I'm sure people have said before to you. Hope, in English, always brings with it an element of doubt. I hope to fly home 
tomorrow, and I hope my bags will accompany me. (laughs) But as I'm flying to Chicago via Dallas, because there's no direct flight to O'Hare, then I fully recognize that my bags may not arrive the same time I do. This has happened before. It will happen again. I hope that they will make it, but I don't know. So when we speak of the Christian hope, are we really saying, well, we hope Jesus will come back, but we really don't know? No, in English, hope has an element of doubt built right into it. But in the original, hope is merely the forward anticipation. It's the looking forward to what is coming. And whether or not it is certain or not depends entirely on the context. That's why some passages in the Bible speak of our certain hope. In English, a certain hope is an oxymoron. It is a built-in mutual contradiction. If you're certain, you don't hope for it. And if you hope for it, it's not certain. But you can have a hope that is a looking forward to something at the end that is certain because what we're looking forward to at the end is as certain as the promises of God. The second coming of Christ is as certain as the first coming of Christ. It's just that one has happened and the other has not yet happened. Do, do, do you see? And that's why you can build your faith on your hope. And you can build your love for the brothers on the hope that is still coming. Do you see? That's, that's the point in Colossians. And without putting it quite that way, it's what we're finding here. Our eyes are being dragged to the end. And we live in the light of the fact that God will sort it all out in the end. Not only will justice be done, it will be seen to be done. And there will be payback. I don't see how else you can read these verses. That's not going to be very popular in a world that loves pluralism. But it's what the text says. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. This is the day of the Lord, to use the language of 1.10 and of 2.2. The day of the Lord brings about an absolute disjunction of persons and of their respective ends. Look at verses 8 and 9 over against verse 10. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There's the gospel. The gospel that is to be believed, or you can put it another way, it's to be obeyed. That is, you bow to the claims of the gospel. You come under the lordship of Christ. You obey it. You trust yourself to it. You believe it. It's all part of the same matrix. There is a reprehensibleness to not accepting this gospel. It's not merely an optional extra for certain people with religious inclinations of a Christian sort. (laughs) Did, Did you see? This is the gospel of God. It's the great good news. And Paul yearns that people will believe it. But if they do not... He is under no illusion whatsoever of the outcome for these people if they disobey it. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might.
There are many, many images of hell in the Bible. As there are many, many images of heaven. And I do think that sometimes we are so restricted in our knowledge of those images that we sometimes have slightly cartoonish visions of both. Heaven, well, it's, 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 it's like those little drawings where you sit around in a, in a white nightgown on a puffy cloud and play a harp. After the first six billion years or so, I bet you that would get boring. But, but when you actually look at all the things the Bible says about what heaven is like, you know, the parable of the talents, it's a place you're going to be given a lot more work to do and be, going to be really busy. It, it, in Revelation chapter 5, it's a place with these fantastic choirs around the throne. Um, it, it's a place of resurrection existence. It's, it's a place of universal joy. It, it's, it's, it's a place where, where all, all the harps come down. And, and the harps in the ancient world were instruments of joy. It's like saying it's a place where all the banjos break out. You know, it's pretty hard to be sad when there are a lot of banjos breaking out. You know, you know? And, 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 and it's all of these images of what, of what glory is like. And at the heart of it all is, is him who sits on the throne and the lamb. Him who sits on the throne and the lamb. Him who sits on the throne and the lamb. This constantly referring phrase in the book of Revelation. And hell? It's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place characterized by fire. Or conversely, in another image, it's a place of darkness. It's a place where there is no repentance. Have you ever considered the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in that respect? When the rich man opens his eyes in Hades, in hell, and he sees in this parable Abraham and and Lazarus a long, long way off, what do you think should be the first thing that he would say? Wouldn't you expect him to say something like, Lazarus, I'm so sorry. Did I get that one wrong? Oh, please forgive me. Wouldn't you expect him to say that? He doesn't. He still wants to treat him as a menial. Uh, Father Abraham, send send that chap, send Lazarus to, to, to send me some water to cool my tongue. He still thinks in hell that he's the center of the universe and can tell the patriarchs where to send the menials. There is not a hint anywhere in the Bible that anybody repents in hell. Hell is a place for people to go on being bitter, thinking they're at the center of the universe, cursing everyone else out, hating it and suffering without God in an endless cycle, a downward spiral of abysmal sin and damnation for which they're responsible with no Listen, biblical Christianity is not just about being nicer American citizens. It's not just about getting your life sorted out so that you raise happy, well-adjusted children. It's being reconciled to the living God to whom we must give an account by the sole means that this God has provided. And it shapes absolutely everything such that we live in the light of the end. In the light of the end, 
We're passionate to build a community of the faithful here. We love one another. We learn to trust this God who has given us so much. And we live in hope that at the end justice will be done and will be seen to be done. And we'd learn to cry with the church in every generation, yes, even so, come, Lord Jesus. No, there's an absolute disjunction of persons and of their respective ends. You will punish those who do not know God, do not obey the gospel. It's the same thing. They do not know God precisely because they do not obey the gospel. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And over against that, this takes place on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Here there is a vision of the sheer God-centeredness of those who believe the apostles' testimony. He comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at. I've been doing university missions now for 30 years or, or more. In the last 10 or 15 years, I've begun to hear a question that I never heard in the first 20 years. Never did. Now I can't do university mission at any university in the Western world without having somebody ask me this question in one form or another. The question runs something like this. According to the Bible, God always wants to be at the center of everything. He wants to be praised. He wants to be glorified, whatever that means. In our passage, he wants to be marveled at. But in our relationships with one another, anybody who wants to be praised all the time and glorified and marveled at is a megalomaniac. We don't like people like that. We want people to walk with a certain kind of confidence, maybe, but still with a certain kind of humility and help the little guy, you know? And there's God insisting that he get praised all the time. Why don't we just dismiss him as a megalomaniac? I have not done a university mission in the last 10 years where people haven't asked me that question. And of course, you, you can give some obvious answers. God is not just like us. Do you know? There's only one of him. There are a lot of us, and, uh, and we don't have the right to pretend that we're superior to all the rest of us. God is God. He, he's our maker. He, he's our redeemer. He's, he's our judge. Think what, what he has done in the gospel by the giving and, uh, of his own son. You can talk about all of those things, but there's more to it than that. There's a deeper thing. Don't you see it is for our good that we adore him? That's the way we've been made. We are creatures. We, we cannot enter into a right relationship with him apart from glorifying him. The sign, indeed, that our hearts have turned and are no longer self-absorbed, but they're focused on the God of our redemption. The sign is precisely that the one whom we hated or pushed off or despised or resented now becomes the one whom we love. 
And so when he comes to be marveled at, it's not because he's got deep psychological needs and the poor guy somehow needs to be stroked. That's appalling. In eternity past, he didn't need to be stroked. God is the God, that the older theologians spoke, the God of aseity. That is, he is so much from himself, ase in Latin. He is so much from himself that he, he has no needs. It's not as if God gets to Thursday afternoon and says, boy, I can hardly wait till they break out the guitars at Desert Springs Church on Sunday. It's getting pretty lonely up here, do you know? I, I need my weekly, my, my weekly stroke of praise. It's ridiculous. God does not need our praise. He, does, he doesn't need it. He may demand it. He may want it, both for his glory and for our good, but he doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need anything. He's entirely self-contained and and entirely happy in and of himself. But he also knows that it is for our immeasurable, incalculable, eternal good that we love him with heart and soul and mind and strength, that we adore him, that we fasten our gaze so unflinchingly upon him. We see him for who he is, If we are God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered, we see him for who he is, and therein lies our sanctification, our growing conformity to Christ, our anticipation of the glory yet to come, our our foretaste, our our first taste, our our anticipation of, of the perfect transformation, the glorification that will be ours on that day when he comes to be glorified and to be marveled at amongst those who have believed. And all of this, transparently, because of the gospel. The alternative is those who do not obey the gospel versus those who have believed the gospel. And finally, the prayer of the apostle, verses 11 and 12. With this in mind, that is, with this day of the Lord in mind, with this future, with this ultimate reversal with this final judgment with all of its terror and glory with this in mind we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul pray for in the light of all of this? He prays that our God may make us worthy of his calling. Now the call for Paul is regularly the effective call of God to become a Christian, to be be a believer, to be saved, to be converted, to be justified, sanctified. That is the call And now Paul prays that we may be worthy to live in line with that call, to live a life worthy of being a child of God, redeemed, accepted, with sins forgiven, already those who have received the Holy Spirit, to live a life worthy of that. That's what I pray for. Paul says. So the question becomes then, 
for us in our prayer lives and for us in our churches, public meetings, small group meetings, house meetings, how often do we pray for prayers like that? As opposed to praying that the bank will accept our mortgage application or we'll get a better grade on the next physics test or whatever. All of which may be legitimate prayers. But Peter can tell us to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. And yet, at the center of apostolic praying is for this kind of, the word isn't used, but it's the point, sanctification. That is to live a life worthy of being a Christian. I pray for that. And that in that framework, by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. That you'll live a fruitful life. You see, this is not some barely hanging on Christianity, nor is it some avocational Christianity that you plug into on Sunday morning because it's 11 o'clock again. What else are you going to do? It's it's nothing like that. This, This embraces absolutely everything, don't you see? This is a life that's worth living. And it anticipates the end. And it is characterized by obedience to the gospel. And already it's full of marveling at God in anticipation of the way we will marvel at him without any restraint or limitation on the last day. How countercultural is that? Now we've created our own plausibility structures. And they all turn on the revelation of God. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.